We've all had plans that have fallen to pieces at one point or another. In the late 90s, my family moved from Seekonk, Massachusetts to Rehoboth, Massachusetts, and we brought with us a beautiful two-level four-car garage. That's right, took this four-car garage down. It went over to Rehoboth on flatbeds and sat in that property. And then, unfortunately, after time and deterioration, it had to be dispensed with. The, the plan was for this beautiful, helpful building to be uh, re repurposed and replanted, but that didn't happen. And that happens with our human endeavors sometimes. We, we have good plans, fruitful plans, and they don't always work out. But this, my friend, this, my brother and sister, is not the way it works with God's plans. All His plans come together, and they come together Perfectly. The reason that ours sometimes fall apart, whether they're on smaller scale items or larger scale items, is because we are limited in our wisdom and we are limited in our power. But God is not limited in any way. We must understand that God is not limited at all and all His plans will be accomplished. Now I had you open to Romans chapter 8 because it makes sense because that's what we're studying, but that's not where I was supposed to have you open. So actually, turn in your Bibles, to Isaiah chapter 46. The 46th chapter of Isaiah. That was my plan for you to open to. My illustration worked. All of my plans have failed. Isaiah 46. I'd like to draw your attention to verses 8 through 11. Isaiah is the penman. God is the author. And His Word says, Remember this in verse 8, Stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me. Listen carefully. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. Will you say the last part with me? And I will do it. Do you believe this? Believers in Jesus Christ believe this. God's Word speaks. We say, yes, Lord. Take a look at Isaiah 55. And I'll draw your attention to verse 11. Again, Isaiah the penman, God the author, God's word says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall, what's that word? Accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is a common theme in the Scriptures. In Psalm 115, in verse 3, God's Word says, Our God is in heaven, in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Look down uh, at the next uh, verse in uh, Ephesians 1.11, which we'll come back to later on. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him 
who works how many things? All things according to the counsel of His will. This morning, we are studying through a passage that declares the absolute sovereign authority of God over the most important aspect of life, which is our ultimate conformity to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Absolute sovereign authority over the most important area of life, that is that we would be conformed to the image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Head over now to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. As we study through this, it's vitally important that we allow the Scriptures to inform us and not have us inform the Scriptures. And I will state at the very beginning of our study, I am not a Calvinist. That would require reading Calvin's writings and studying his thoughts about God and the Bible, which I do not. I don't study through a passage as someone who was reformed or as a dispensationalist. I study through a passage as a child of God. I study through a passage of Scripture as a pastor that is responsible to convey the complete, clear, clear text that God has for us. And so I don't come from some theological standpoint that makes decisions for me. I look at the text of Scripture and let it speak. Um, I would say that in the passage that we have of this significance, it is my practice to look at commentaries absolutely last and only to ensure that I'm not coming up with some new doctrine. Commentaries do not tell you or me how to interpret the Scriptures. Now, they will tell you how to do it, but that is not what our usage of a commentary ought to be. The Scriptures are authoritative. The commentaries are not. And so, I will tell you, I love my books. I love my commentaries. I love my theology books. All of them. But you could take all of them away so long as I have one book. The only one of the books that I possess, and I have many of these, the only variety of books that I have that is absolutely authoritative is the Bible. Whether it's in a King James Version, a New King James Version, a New American Standard Version, an English Standard Version, and several others that are excellent translations of the original languages. There are some Bible versions that are less stellar than others. Uh, what we want is literal, clear translation. And that's what we have. We have that before us. As we look at this topic this morning, there is a tendency of allowing our minds to counter thoughts and passages that run contrary to what is being discussed. Because the Bible has a rich variety of texts and ways that God conveys His saving purposes. And so, you might sit there and think, well, you're saying that, but I, what about this verse? I will tell you that that is not a fruitful way to navigate through our time this morning. If you are a note-taker, when a question arises in your minds, it's fruitful to write that down, but don't lose track of what we are studying. This is a corporate worship service. 
And so we must worship together as a congregation in our study of the Word. It's not an individual study. And as students of the Scriptures, as students of the Bible, we need to understand each passage of Scripture in its context and the emphasis of each passage of Scripture. And so when uh, scripture, passages, scripture passage emphasizes one element, we have to make sure that that is the emphasis of our understanding of that passage. That is vitally important. One of the wonderful aspects of this church community, Cornerstone, is that there are people who stand in various locations on the spectrum of God's sovereignty and man's free will with regard to salvation. And we have been able to maintain the bond of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit, and the bond of peace. There is richness to some variety on these issues. There's richness to being able to understand and be able to talk with one another through these things. You may find yourself this morning at odds with a statement or two that I make, and that's fine. You have every right to be at odds with something that I say. But what is not right and not okay is if you contend with what the Scripture clearly teaches. Your responsibility is to account for what the passage of Scripture says, not to dismiss a portion of a text by countering it with something else. And so I would caution you against jumping to conclusions, but rather letting the Word of God speak. The Bible does provide much clarity on these issues, and it also leaves some room for some sense of mystery. That's not bad, but good. Mystery is not bad, but good. If you, if I, could figure out everything about God in this life, that would mean he's no more complex than I am. Is that the God you want to worship? Someone as simple as you. I don't think so. I don't want to worship someone that, that is on my level. That would re mean we could just be buddies. But we're not buddies. He is God. I'm His creation. I'm His subject. And praise God because of His grace. I'm His child. What a God we serve and what a God we worship. And this will be what will govern our time this morning as we consider God's Word. The Bible does, again, provide clarity, but does leave mystery. This is why Paul ends Romans 11 with this astonishing statement. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. We're not looking for cookie-cutter Christians. We're seeking to be humble believers who can engage one another with the Scriptures, hear one another, and sharpen one another's faith as we seek to allow God to teach us more about Himself, His purposes, and His plans. That was a long introduction. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and following. Let's take a look. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. The first item of our attention this morning is that God foreknew all His children. God foreknew all His children. Take a look again at verse 29. For those whom He uh, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. There's that word foreknew. And it is the Greek term prognosko. Prognosko can mean when, the, when a human is the subject of the sentence, that is, the, when it's a human that is foreknowing something, it can mean to know beforehand. You'll see that in Acts chapter 26 and verse 5, and 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17. When a human is the subject of prognosko, it just means. I've been informed ahead of time. In other words, I looked on my weather app and I see tomorrow is going to be what, 57 degrees, 38 degrees. I have no idea. But if I looked, I would have a general idea. There's a prognostication about the weather. And so I would know ahead of time whether I should put on a coat tomorrow or have on a t-shirt. Right? We know something ahead of time. However, when God is the subject, it is packed with much more meaning. And we're going to understand this because we're going to look at a number of passages of Scripture and let the Scripture speak. Right? We want to know, what does it mean that God foreknew me? What does it mean that God foreknew you? What does this concept mean? Take a look first of all at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In order to understand these things, you'll have to do a little bit of work. We're going to keep our minds engaged. We're going to understand some, some Greek words and some Hebrew words that will help us to understand these concepts as best we can the way that God has revealed them. Acts chapter 2 and verses 22 and 23, God's Word says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the, what does it say? Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He ties together a definite plan, an unquestionable plan, and foreknowing something. When did this take place? Well, according to Peter, as the penman, and God as the author, in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 20, God's Word says this, He, Jesus, was foreknown when? Before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of your, for your sake. So Jesus was foreknown by the Father. But what, is, what do you mean? Wasn't He there? Of course He was. The Son of God is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, didn't come into existence. The man Christ Jesus came into existence, but the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, has been 
around forever. He's eternal, like God the Father is eternal, because He is God. But yet, this passage says He foreknew this one. Why? Because He was going to reveal Him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a predetermined, foreknown idea. In the Greek New Testament, the words associated with this concept of foreknowledge are two words. There's prognosko, which we mentioned already, and prognosis. You hear that? Prognosis? Prognosis. It has the idea of knowing knowledge, foreknowledge. There's, there's to know ahead of time and there's knowledge ahead of time. So one is a verb and the other is a noun. That's pretty clear. The real help to understanding this concept is as you look at the Hebrew term yada. Yada means to know, to know in this way that we're talking about. And so I want to bring your attention to a few passages of Scripture. They'll be on the screens. And I want you to, uh, to understand the word know in association with parallel terms that God uses in these passages. In Jeremiah chapter 1, in verse 5, speaking about the calling of Jeremiah, listen to what God's Word says. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. There's that concept of yada, to know, to know in advance, to have this intimate eternal knowledge of. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. That's to, to set aside, to make holy, to sanctify, to have a, a purpose. And then it says, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. It's not like God said, hey, Jeremiah, I, I see how things have been going in your life. And uh, you're a really a good guy. And because you're a good guy, I'm going to use you like this. No. Before he was even formed in the womb. Before the embryonic stage. Before the earliest signs of life. God had chosen, known, planned, sanctified, and appointed Jeremiah for a task. That's, that's the parallel concepts with to know ahead of time. You see that? Well, a little bit further, in Amos chapter 3, in verses 1 and 2, listen to this. This, this is, this is a, a mind blower for us from, on a human level. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. So who's the subject? This is Israel, God's people. You only have I, what does that word say? Known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. What is happening here? God knows only Israel. Does that mean He doesn't know the people of Saudi Arabia? Does that mean He doesn't know the people of Asia? The people of Australia? The people of South America? He's not saying, I don't have any idea about who you are. This is something different. When God knows someone this way, it's an intimate, salvific kind of knowledge. Yada, in this context, means that God, specifically, before anything happened, knew that this group of people would be His. It's not foreknowledge in the sense of God helplessly being a, 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 an innocent bystander and just simply knew before it happened. There is much more involved in this. This is God definitively deciding something. 
we see this concept come up in John chapter 10 twice, this concept of God or Jesus knowing. And it speaks of an intimate saving knowledge. Listen to these two verses of Scripture in John chapter 10. First of all, in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. In verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I know them, and they follow me. This is an intimate, saving knowledge. You see the connection with this knowledge of God, this saving knowledge of God, and it happening before the foundation of the world? This is what our text is telling us. That God takes all the muck and mire of our lives and the difficulties and challenges of our lives, and He says, for those that are the called, those whom I have foreknown, those that have been predestined, all these things work together for good, because I'm using it to conform you to the image of my Son, it's as if it's already done, which is why he ends the whole passage by saying you've been glorified. This is definitive. God accomplishes everything He purposes. None of His purposes are thwarted. God foreknows. Take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. You're in Acts. Take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 for a moment. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, We're going to cut right into the context. Paul is going to cite an Old Testament passage that we're going to turn to in a moment. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, the Bible says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Will you read this with me? The Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. You have that in your mind? The Lord knows those who are His. Head over now to Numbers chapter 16. This is where Paul is citing. He's quoting from Numbers 16. Now we're going to read it and we're going to miss a little bit of of the concept in verse 5 because it's translated slightly differently in the Septuagint. This is helpful for you. The Septuagint is what? Oh, what is the Septuagint? It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Okay? In the Septuagint, it reads just like it does in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. In the Hebrew, it reads slightly differently. We're in Numbers chapter 16. We're going to cut into that context. This is about Korah and the rebellion saying, Moses, you're taking too much on yourself. We're also spiritual. The whole whole nation is holy. You think of yourself too highly. And Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, has something to say to him. Verse 5, And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning, the Lord will show who is His. Now in the Septuagint, it says, the Lord knows those who are His. In the morning, the Lord will essentially reveal those who are His and who is holy and will bring Him near to Him. The one whom He, will you say this word with me? Chooses, He will bring near to Him. Do this, take censors, Korah, in all His company, 
put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord, will you say it with me, chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And so, Moses uses the word chooses two time. it's times in this passage. It's the Hebrew term bachar. bachar. And God uses that, that same expression elsewhere. God says, I have selected you out of all the nations. I've chosen you out of all the nations. How did he do that? He started with Abraham. He started with Abraham. And he confirmed that same oath through Isaac. And he confirmed that same oath through Jacob and the seed. This was all promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Head now over to Deuteronomy. You're in Numbers. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. All of this is kind of embedded in the concept of foreknowledge that we started with in Romans chapter 8. It's all embedded in this, so I'm trying to unpack it for us so we can understand this term that, that we could ambiguously define. And we don't want to ambiguously define the term. We're trying to understand the meat of that term so, so we have an understanding of what God is saying through Paul in Romans chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 7, look at verses 6, 7, and 8, please. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has Bachar chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions, possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He, we've, we've, we started out wide to know before no. There's more to this. This is a definitive plan. It's a definitive plan. The Lord knows those who are His. Those who He knows this way are those that are Bechar, the chosen. They're chosen. The whole nation of Israel. Why did He choose them? Because they were super smart? Because they were greatly, uh, they had ingenuity? There was no such thing. He took them out of nowhere. He made Abraham the first of a new nation. This is what God has done. This is God choosing someone. So when Paul tells these believers that God foreknew them, he's letting them know that God has a special plan for them before they were ever born, and that these special plans were absolutely going to take place because they were guaranteed by God. In John chapter 6, we have to ask this question. I'll ask the question, then we'll look at the texts on the screens. In John chapter 6, how many of those whom the Father has given the Son will come to Him? I don't have to turn to the passage, but we're going to. On the boards, ready? John chapter 6 and verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never 
cast out. We have both a definitive statement, right, of God's saving purposes and a general demonstration that anyone that comes to God will never be turned away. The, the, the gospel cry, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, is not circumvented by foreknowledge. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved is not circumvented by God's foreknowledge. But all that the Father has given to the Son will come to Him. Later in the same text, John chapter 6 and verse 39, And this is the will of Him who sent Me, that I should lose what? Nothing of all that He has given Me, but I will raise it or Him up on the last day. So this awareness of God's determination to accomplish His purpose in us gives us comfort in the trouble that we face in this life. Has it been a rough stretch? Are you in the midst of difficulty? Physically? Emotionally? Financially? Spiritually? Struggling? Do you know the Lord Jesus? If you have faith in Christ, these passages are about you. We'll get closer to that in a few moments. God foreknew all of His children. Secondly, back in Romans chapter 8, God predestined His children. God predestined His children. Romans chapter 8. We're just going to look at one phrase, so you can either turn back there or you can keep yourself in neutral, ready to go to the next passage. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. It says, for those whom He foreknew, that's what we just spoke about, this same group He also predestined. He also predestined. Those whom God foreknew are the same people that God predestined. That's what He's conveying. Those whom, those whom, those whom, those whom, all throughout this text. He foreknows, He predestines, and then He calls. The word uh, predestined, excuse me, in this passage in verse 29 is Pro-orizomai. Pro-orizomai. Now the word orizo, orizo, it means to mark out by boundaries or limits. To mark out by boundaries or limits. That's orizo. Pro is before. To mark out by boundaries or markers ahead of time. It's, It's almost, if you can follow me, It's setting boundaries around someone that God has foreknown. Those whom He's foreknown are the ones He sets boundaries around. Let's keep keep that in our minds. You could define this briefly as pre-marking, pre-demarcation, this is a good word for you, or predetermined. Head head back to Acts now. Acts chapter 4. Again, I want to encourage you to allow the passages of Scripture to speak for themselves. What does the text say? Because if you let the text speak for itself, it will, God will, through the passages of Scripture, encourage your soul. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. Speaking about Peter and John, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, 
Uh, By the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of God. Listen, there's a lot of words that were just said. But these people gathered together to do what? Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had proorizo, predestined to take place. God determined to do this. God determined to do what? Allow sinners to bring the Lord Jesus first to be convicted and then to be executed on a cross to bear my sin. God determined ahead of time. He marked it off by boundaries, and nothing would stop God's will from being accomplished. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 1. Same concept, proorizo, the idea of God marking off before time by boundaries. Ephesians chapter 1, this passage is talking about the spiritual blessings that are ours, every believer, in Christ. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He blessed us in the Beloved. In love, He predestined us to what? Adoption as sons. My friend, you don't make it to heaven unless you have the authority to get there. And the only way to have the authority to get there is to be a son of God. Well, from John's perspective, as he records it, it's as many as believe him. To them he gave authority to become the sons of God. That's good. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a son of God, and therefore you're headed for glory. Beautiful. This text says that God marked you before time, put boundaries around you so that nothing, no one, could stop that from happening. Look down a little bit later in the text at verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. How? How did we obtain an inheritance? Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works how many things? All things according to the counsel of His will. So what happens when God sets boundaries around a person. Let's just take a break here because I know I've been driving you a little bit. Take a breath and listen to this text of Scripture from Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits, speaking of angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What's he talking about there? That God sends angels to make sure that those that are going to be believers are safe. Why? Because God 
marked them out beforehand. This is my territory. This is my turf. This is my person. Well, later in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, he talks about believing the gospel that results in the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It means God signing his name to you and you're eternally his. What, what sets that process off? Well, what sets it off is God predestined. <laughs> and what brings it to fruition is that a person trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior. And at that moment that a person trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior, God signs his name and says, this one's mine. For how long? Forever. You going through difficulty? You going through hardship? Inner turmoil? Don't worry. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God set boundaries around you. Guess what that means? You'll be with him. It'll be worth it all. It'll be worth it all. A good illustration of this concept. It's not a, it's not a direct illustration. It's just an, an abstract illustration. In the book of Revelation, chapter 7, God talks about the 144,000 that he's going to protect during a time of difficulty on the earth, 12,000 from each of these tribes. Listen to this wording in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until I have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Does that not have some at least abstract application? God says, before the judgment comes out, mark these off so that they're safe. I think that we can see that same concept that uh, uh, involved in what we're talking about in predestination. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7, this same word, pro-orizo, is translated decreed. Decreed. Anything God purposes to do, He does. And back in Romans chapter 8, which is the source of our study, He says, all of those whom He has foreknown are all of those whom He has predestined, marked, protected, ordained, decreed. Is that, I think it's pretty clear. You might not have this as the, the way you think through this process, but what does the text say? That's our responsibility. It's not to come up with our own theological system. It's say, what does the passage say? If it says something, we have to understand it in light of what God is revealing. Not only are they foreknown, not only are they predestined, they're also called. God called His children. And in verse 30, where He uses this, this same expression, this expression for the same group of people, He uses a generic word for called. It's kaleo. Kaleo. It's used 146 times. It's like calling someone's name. This is my big moment. Think When you think kaleo, the word that's used in verse 30, you think, yo, Adrian, we did it. Remember that one? That's, it's just a general expression, called. So it's like to, to call out, to, to call to someone's side. It's, it's a very general term. But in verse 28, that is not the Greek term that, that God uses. He uses the Greek term kletos. Kletos. It's a more specific term. The word kletos is used 11 times in the Greek New Testament. Ten of those times, it's very specific and definitive. When, when a person is kletos, called, they're a believer. 
One exception. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 14. Listen to what it says. For many are kletos, called, but few are chosen. So in, in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 14, the only usage of the term this way, it's, it's a, an open, universal calling. This concept that Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient for the, the sin of the whole world, but it is efficient, effective, only for those who turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. Their sins are removed. Jesus' righteousness is added to them because they've turned from their sin and turned to Christ for salvation. General call, but ten times of Kletos' use, it's very specific. The called of God. The called to be holy. The called saints. This is who God, He's chosen them. In the context of Romans chapter 8, how many of those whom God called are justified? How many? All of them. Why do you say that? Because that's what it says. So let's take a look, please. Romans chapter 8 again. So God has foreknown all of His children. God has predestined all of His children. God has called all of His children. Now God has justified all of His children. Verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, how many of them? All of them. He also justified. The same group He justified. The most basic idea of the term justification is to declare righteous. How do we know if a person is justified. How do you know that you are justified? Oh, man. I hope. I just hope that I was foreknown. Is that what he's telling us to do? Try to figure out if you're one of the foreknown? Oh, I hope I was one of the marked off ahead of time people. It's not what he tells you to do. I hope that I was called Kletos, one of the definitive ones. I hope that's the way it was for me. Oh, you've been justified. How do you know if you're justified? You have faith in Jesus Christ. There's the answer for you, my friend. How do you know if you're called? You have faith in Jesus Christ. How do you know if you're predestined? You have faith in Jesus Christ. How do you know if you've been foreknown? You have faith in Jesus Christ. Which is why the call of the apostles Turn from your sin. Trust Christ. Trust Christ. The call of the church that we cry out week after week and in our individual lives to our neighbors, come. Come to know Jesus. Come to know Jesus. Trust Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You'll be justified. Your sin will be forgiven. And Jesus' righteousness will be added. Faith in Jesus Christ is the first evidence of justification as well as the first evidence of having been called, as well as the first evidence of having been predestined, as well as the first evidence of having been foreknown. The believer, a justified saint, has an enduring faith. 
This faith is first demonstrated in knowing that we are headed for heaven. And it's further demonstrated in a growing, life-transforming obedience to the Word of God. Did you hear that? It's first demonstrated in confidence that I'm headed to heaven because of what Christ has done. And secondly, it's demonstrated in a life that seeks to obey the Word of God. You'll remember the statement, both Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon are famed for having made this expression, it is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. In other words, there's demonstration of God's faithfulness in our lives. Justification was clearly illustrated in the life of Abraham. In Genesis 15.6, the Bible says, He, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him for righteousness. Now this was before Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. And this was before Abraham obeyed the Lord with regard to circumcision. He de- and, and before all of that, God declared him to be righteous. Based upon what? Faith in His Word. On this side of the cross, because we were born after the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, it's not faith in some one statement of the Bible. It's faith in Jesus Christ specifically because Jesus lived His life in obedience to the Father in my place. And Jesus laid down His life as a once-for-all sacrifice in my place for my sin. And so what Abraham believed God about that resulted in his justification is not the same description or content as what you and I as believers in Jesus Christ understand because God has, through the progress of revelation, built an understanding of what it is that saves. And that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, we see it clearly. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We've turned from our sin. We've turned toward Christ. And God makes us a new creation. Well, what takes place? Well, verse 21 answers that question of 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake... God the Father made Jesus Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God takes away our record of sin and guilt and condemnation because He charged them to the Lord Jesus and places on our record a perfect obedience of Christ that He accrued for us. God imputes that to our record. God has justified His children. It is evidenced by faith and it marks us as those who have been foreknown, predestined, and called. Do you trust Christ? I know you've been lost in a slew of words in the last few moments. I'm going to give you a second to reflect. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your only means of eternal salvation? That means, my friend, you are foreknown. That means you are predestined. That means you are called. Can I get a hallelujah for that? You know Christ. 
everything about your life is okay. You might not like everything about your life, but everything about your life is okay because God has marked you for Himself and you are headed for glory. This leads us to our last and brief conclusion. God has glorified His children. Verse 30, those whom He justified, He also glorified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Because God is God, and He is eternal, not bound by time, and He is almighty, all that He desires to do, He accomplishes. So He can talk about a future happening with all the confidence that it will come to pass. So that He can state it as having already happened. Now we could get into some linguistics here, which I'm sure you would love, and we could say, well, this is an aorist tense, and probably since it's an aorist tense, it must be an ingressive aorist. You want to talk about ingressive aorist? Probably not. Nonetheless, an ingressive aorist means it's talking about the beginning, the entrance into some action. Okay, so if you want to see this as God saying, you have been glorified, and it's the start of something that's really wonderful, and you've started this process of glorification, what I'd say to you is that's really unsatisfying. That's really unsatisfying to look at this, and you, those who have been justified have been glorified. Well, that just means you've entered into this process where God is going to glorify you. No. no that's, that is not glorification. It's just this little teeny little incremental steps. Glorification in the Scriptures is radical radical and God speaks about this radical transformation as if it already took place one passage of scripture for your attention please 1st Corinthians 15 1st Corinthians 15:50 I tell you this brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable can anyone say row because you're flesh and blood and you're perishable. That's not good news. But the good news comes. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we, believers, shall all be changed. How quickly will that take place? Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, what? imperishable that means i can i can make it in and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality well this is going to take place when when god takes us home when jesus comes back in philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 for our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await the savior the lord jesus christ who will transform change our vile body, our lowly body, to be made like into His glorious body. How? By the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. John says it too in 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children. What's that next word? We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Oh, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 13 in verse 12. For we now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, oh, 
goodness, can you believe this? Face to face? Face to face with Christ my Savior? Face to face? I can be with Him? I can see Him? Look Him in the eye? I, I read of Him? I, I, I consider Him? I talk to Him? I know He's with me? I know He's in me? I know He's for me? I know He rules over me? He's my head? I know all these things. Now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Then I shall know, I shall know how much? Fully. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This ultimate glorification is what I believe is in view back in uh, Romans chapter 8, verses, verse 30. It's the glorification of body, soul, spirit, and mind. And that's in the context of Romans chapter 8, because he talked about it in Romans 8.11, in Romans 8.17, and in Romans 8.17. 23, he talked about that glorious transformation. It's, he's talking about that day that's coming. And in the meantime, my brothers and sisters, because we have this glorious, certain hope, because we know this is going to take place, and that all that God intends to do, He will do, that God will ultimately conform us to Jesus Christ, it's guaranteed. There is a process that's going on right now. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3 it says, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about it taking place in, in the steps that the Spirit is causing us to move from one degree of glory to another. So God is using this certainty of the end to impact our present We'll talk about that the next time in a few weeks when we pick up our study of Romans again, this process of God conforming us to His Son, Jesus Christ. So what do we take away from our study this morning? Number one, all that God promises, He accomplishes. Number two, trusting in Jesus Christ for our eternal redemption indicates that we are God's children that He has known, marked, called and justified and our glorification is sure. Number three, as God's special people, we are in the process of growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And finally, do not grow weary in this process. For God will accomplish it fully at the end. Our plans may fail, but God's never fail. Let's pray together. Father, You're good. Your Word is true. We may not understand all of the implications, how it all works out. So many have tried. So many have fought, argued. Father, we just see what Your Word says. And we want to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And thank You, Lord. And we want to be those that are vessels. Vessels that call people to faith in Christ. So that they too will have this confident assurance that while this life may be hard, glory is coming. Help us to be vessels fit for your use. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.